0: Welcome to the Immigrant Entrepreneurs Show, where our mission is to inspire and impact other immigrant entrepreneurs. My guest today is Tony Salvaggio from eSmart Recycling. Tony, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you for having me, Ali. It's a pleasure.
0: Absolutely. Honored to have you as a guest. So, Tony... Um, I'm an
1: immigrant. I qualify. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely.
0: You're an immigrant. That's, that's what I was going to ask you. So, um... Yeah, obviously you're an immigrant entrepreneur, otherwise you wouldn't be here. So um, tell us where you're from, and obviously we both are in the U.S., but yeah, tell us where you're from and how you ended up in the U.S.
1: Man, so I was born and raised in Venezuela, Venezuela, and um, I came here April 10th of 2011. And I came on a work visa, and I didn't even know where Tampa was on the map when I came. And I had been to the United States before, uh, like to Disney and Miami, and we had some friends of the family, and that's why we came here. And um, so, from two thousand eleven, brand new country, typical immigrant story, you know. I think I think we all we all have a very similar story. I think that's that's the, the part of the fabric of the immigrant that unites us. It's it's something that we can all relate to what it's like to. Just go to a different place that you don't know absolutely nothing about (laughs) and start from zero and you're okay with it,
0: right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So did you had anyone in the U.S. or did you just decide on your own to come to the U.S. and start working here?
1: So we had some friends of the family that had started a business here and uh, the guy had happened to land in Tampa, but he lived closer to Sarasota. And then when we were spending some holidays together the um his family was still very young he wanted to get out of the country venezuela had become a very messy messy country and he he just wanted a better future for his family and at that time i was graduating college Mm. and i knew how to speak english and he said hey if i if i sponsor your visa would you come and would you help me kind of put together something similar to what he had with his family in venezuela what was related to scrap metal you know they they were in the scrap metal business so i said yeah for sure and that's kind of how the whole journey began i was supposed to be living closer to him Mm. because it's the only person that i kind of knew they were friends with my mom and dad not with me obviously and when when i made that commute like the first day tampa i was like this doesn't make any sense i gotta (laughs) live in tampa (laughs) it's crazy so i ended up living in a little uh suburb of tampa called brandon Mm -hmm. i know brandon and that was the first time this little the little first apartment that i ever rented was there and that the rest is history you know Mm -hmm. that's the the, our warehouse is there i've always kind of worked in the same riverview tampa brandon area um and then unbeknownst to to how we think the story is gonna go this just became home
0: right right. so don't don't tell us about the warehouse and everything we'll get there soon yeah okay but so what was the first job you got here and then your friend family friend asked you to work for him what was the first job that you got yourself into
1: so we were uh buying junk cars Mm. right um, and we were stripping the parts and we were recycling the parts. And the way that the model works is that if, if you get a junk car, you know for us it might be junk, but the motor, the engine, the transmission, some parts might still be valuable in secondary markets. And the secondary markets for us was Latin America. Mm. so we would take the cars in we would strip the parts that we knew we could export and sell as used parts and then the rest we would sell it as scrap and that was my that was my gig i was in charge of buying selling uh managing uh the whole scrapyard, if you will i had absolutely no idea what i was doing (laughs) but that was that was my first experience was those you know 60 hours a week in the sun you know taking parts out of cars and i was not necessarily doing it i was not the person mm. doing it but you're involved in the whole process from beginning to end
0: right right
1: yeah and that's what i did uh, for a good year and a half
0: okay and then what happened from there
1: well um one of the main reasons is that uh I- the company that hired me the guy was here on a on an investor visa
0: so I'm here on an investor visa.
1: <laughs> right. So his yeah. investor visa got denied, mm. uh, which is ironic because my work visa was to work in his company. Right. And it shines a light of what, you know, what can happen in the whole system and attorneys and how the cases are presented. It just didn't make any, any sense whatsoever. Mm-hmm. So at that point, we I had an opportunity and I became a scrap metal buyer for another company here. Mm. And the whole process was just crazy how it happened.
0: So I have a question right there. So his visa got denied. That means he was rejected and he had to go back to...
1: Right, right. And then he closed the company, carried on. I think he's in the Dominican Republic now.
0: Okay. And then you moved on with a different company, basically now using what you had experienced, but in a little slightly different... Industry is that correct?
1: Right, because now I was in the uh, in the buying side, mm-hmm. right? I used to be the 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 company that was producing the, the 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 scrap, and we had to find buyers for that scrap. And now I was on the buyer side. Mm-hmm. Now I had now I had now I understood how the relationships happen from the scrap metal side with the smelters and the shredders and at a higher level, right? Because right, it's a very right. complex. Uh, supply chain so that's what i did for another year and a half
0: okay so let's let's just pause here for a second what was it i would like to know what was it like when you moved to the u.s you know you had been here before on vacation traveling back and forth but when you moved here to live now in the u.s obviously in Florida we have a huge Latino community <laughs> which um, basically helps with with being from Venezuela and getting connected. But what was life like when you got here and start you know you lived here?
1: Yeah, it, it was so it was a culture shock. It was one culture shock after another culture shock because you I, I came here on my own. I'm mm-hmm. an, I'm an only child. My mom, Oh, you were
0: the only child.
1: Yeah, I'm an only child. So my mom helped me. I remember that first trip, and she kind of helped me get set up. And then she went, you know, she stayed for like three or four days. And then when she left, it was the first time. I was like 24, I think, at that time. It was the first time that I was away from home, away mm-hmm. from family, away from everything, right? So so then when you when you're left to fend, you know, by yourself... Mm-hmm then you just get a different level of maturity that comes with the whole process of being an immigrant. Because even here, when, you, you know, you're, you know mom is, you know, two hours away, dad, sister, childhood friends, work friends, cohort, things that they're Absolutely. always mm-hmm. close by, but to just remove yourself from all of that and just put yourself in a place where you literally don't know a single person. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's, it, it's, it's something that we all go through. Mm-hmm. So then learning how to navigate everything and learning how to navigate life. And for me, it was, I came here in 2011 and in 2014, I started my company, which was crazy, stupid idea, right? Mm. <laughs> because I'm still learning how everything <laughs> worked. Right. It was a very expensive, I've, I've gone through a very expensive learning curve, but but you you figure it out, and the community mm. was amazing, so it made it even easier,
0: right? So what was the what was the company that you started back then?
1: So back then, when I st- when I started my company, I thought that we could be
0: sort of like a mobile scrapyard, mm-hmm. right? Based on the knowledge you had, based on the experience right. you have had before,
1: and based on the budget that I had and the capital that I had to start. Mm-hmm and i was when you
0: say sorry to interrupt you but when you say based on the budget and capital i had was it everything was everything self-funded and bootstrapped basically from what you had saved
1: i mean that's one way of saying it so what happened was that at that time one of the catalysts that kind of made me um, quit my my job and start my own company in 2014 was that things were things were getting tougher and tougher in Venezuela, mm. right? Because you know you knew that Venezuela was going through rough times, but you never imagined that it was going to be what it ended up being right mm. now. And that I think that's a, that's a key key aspect of the Venezuelan immigrant mm-hmm. is that we never thought we were going to have to leave our countries, right, right? right? It's you don't you don't think about that when you're growing up. And then when this whole regime started, that was everything that you thought about was how am I going to get the heck out?
0: Mm.
1: And um, so when when we came, so when I came, two thousand eleven, two thousand fourteen, that that whole that whole e- environment was there, and it kept getting tighter and tighter and mm. tighter. So in two thousand fourteen, I started talking to some friends, my you know, close friends were talking to other friends. And we kind of sort of pulled together, maybe we can get together like around $100,000, $150,000 from people that want to get their money out of the country and they have right. no idea where to put back,
0: it. Back there from people right, in from, Venezuela. Right,
1: from friends and people mm-hmm. that that is like, what's Tony doing there? Well, he's mm-hmm. like doing something in scrap metal. Mm-hmm. Maybe we can, you know, do something. I remember February of 2014, we went through a major devaluation of the currency in Venezuela. And it happened like overnight. Right. It's one of those things that for some reason, there was this uh, protest that started with one student Mm -hmm. and now like half of the country is in a protest. Mm -hmm. And I remember it was sort of the beginning of the decline because it was right after Chavez had passed away, right? So it was a lot of uncertainty. And a lot of the people, they just didn't want to get rid of their money. Mm -hmm. because now everything that Mm -hmm. you have saved is basically whatever dollars that you have
0: Mm -hmm.
1: and at that time I had already quit my job and my mom and my dad were like we only have like eight thousand dollars and I had they had like a car here that they had left so I sold that car Mm -hmm. and it really I only had eight thousand dollars to start and with eight thousand dollars there's only so many things that you can do Mm -hmm. and the idea of starting with the scrapyard that kind of led for me to quit my job then it had to be reduced to i only have eight thousand dollars how am i gonna make money with that right and and that's kind of how the whole thing started
0: so was that was that eight thousand dollars the starting capital for your business or was it also combined with the with the money that you could Get together from friends back home in Venezuela?
1: No, so at the end, nobody had any money to invest.
0: Oh, wow. Okay, so you ended up basically with this $8,000? the only thing I had. Oh, wow. Okay. It was the only
1: thing I had, and then I had the opportunity to sell like an old like, Corolla that we had that was right. like a five years old, and then I think I sold that for like, another
0: $8,000, and that was okay. like my second, you know, my, right. my
1: second round of funding.
0: Right. <laughs> so... So, at that time, had you already invested the, the first $8,000 in your business and then you sold the car and also got some some cash from that?
1: I had no idea what I was doing. So, um, a part of me said, I need, to, I, need, I need a truck was one of the first things that kind of came through my mind. I need a truck because with a truck is how you can start, you know, worst case scenario, mm-hmm. it can always be like a junk removal company. Right you know because then i can get i can charge to get the things out and then i can scrap the rest and get some money from this. I knew i, I, I trusted in myself enough to know that i would figure it out, mm-hmm. but i didn't know exactly how i was going to do it. And then some friends that i had that i had met through the through my scrap metal industry introduced me to the idea of, of computers and recycling mm-hmm. computers. And one guy was sort of doing it on the side because he said people don't know what to do with all this stuff and I, I like i put a couple of ads here and then this lady called me and she had like 100 computers and the only thing that i did was i connected her with this guy that buys computers for scrap and i made some money so maybe mm. you should look into that mm. i'm like that's interesting because i started looking at, at the model right and how the electronic waste industry works because it's a whole industry Mm -hmm. within the recycling industry it's a sub-industry that only deals with e-waste and it became super interesting so i tell this guy and i'm like okay so how do you recycle computers mind you at this point 2015 um i have an old truck right because at this point it's the only thing i have and a little trailer where I'm saving some of the stuff that I'm accumulating. So I didn't have any business model, like mm-hmm. poorly planning, <laughs> like, <laughs> horrible. So, um, at this point, I hear about these computers, and I one of the things that catches my attention is that you have the opportunity to get inventory at little to no cost because mm. people have no idea what to do with it. So then he would say, just go to places, networking events, and ask, hey, do you have any old computers? Do you know how to get rid of them? I can help you. And I started doing that. And I always tell this story because it was one of my my biggest culture shocks Mm. was when this one day I learned about this nonprofit Mm
0: -hmm.
1: who doesn't have any computers. And they wanted to figure out a way if they could buy some affordable computers from me. And I remember that when I, when, when I was getting those calls from random people and I had to go and pick up 10 computers, 5 computers, whatever it is, those computers were still fairly new, right? And that's one thing that really caught my attention was mm-hmm. like, I can't believe these people are getting rid of all of this stuff. This is pretty new. Like we come from countries where you don't just throw away things that are working Mm -hmm. like that's Mm -hmm. such a (laughs) (laughs) this is the only country where you just throw away things that are just working Mm -hmm. because there's something better Mm -hmm. i mean maybe now in venezuela right now maybe Mm -hmm. it's like that i don't know i haven't been there in a while but but it sure wasn't like that when i was growing up Mm -hmm. right you you get rid of the computer i mean worst case that thing is like it's a door stopper right right Right. (laughs) before it gets (laughs) thrown away uh so so here i was seeing that everybody was throwing away these things that were new that were working Mm. so i knew that i could scrap them and make money out of them but it just didn't make sense to scrap
0: Mm.
1: because they're still they were still value they're still valuing them so then this nonprofit I noticed that they don't have any computers they have such a powerful story they're mm-hmm. doing these amazing things and and when she's telling me everything that they do and i see that there's such a gap such a mm-hmm. disconnect between the work that's being done in the community versus the reality that we see in corporate america for example mm-hmm. Versus the reality that we see in how public offices manage budgets. Right. Right. And then you see that and then you just go five miles down the street and you see this nonprofit Mm. that's been working in the community for 20 years. That's a lifeline to resources for people here. Mm. And they don't even have computers and you're like, this is mind-blowing because this is America. Mm. Like, this shouldn't exist. It doesn't... I don't understand how this exists because when I was growing up, America was like, it's a dreamland. It's the best mm. country in the world. And then we get to experience it. And we are like, yes, it is the best country in the world, but but how does that exist? Mm. So, then I experienced it with computers, mm. right? Mm-hmm. And, and access to technology. And then we... We we had the opportunity to, after hearing that story, the, the natural thing for me to do is I have to grab some of the computers that we have that we're not doing anything with that probably we're going to end up scrapping them for $5 a piece and give those computers to these guys so they can use u- it, use it mm. way better because mm. now you're giving an opportunity for kids to do their homework, for parents to apply for jobs, to pay their
0: bills, right?
1: So for me it was just a no brainer.
0: Mm. Okay, so can you educate me on how you make money on let's let's put put the nonprofit support on the side for a second, but how a recycling company that recycles, let's say e-waste in general but also computers, how does this model look like? How how do you make money from recycling computers?
1: Right. So the the so when we started figuring out that there was this gap in the community, we said, well, you keep seeing the gap because the only way that we have solved this gap is because there, at some point there's an altruistic approach to it. Mm-hmm. Someone hears about it. They understand the importance of these organizations and what they do. They support it. And that's kind of how the philanthropy model works, mm-hmm. right? Right. And for me, that was very unfair because these guys don't understand how the philanthropy model mm-hmm. works. They're just hustling in the community. right? So then I said, well, what if we could figure out a way where we could translate this support into terms that corporate partners could understand? Mm. So how can we utilize this to turn these old computers into just an excuse to support the community. So then what the way that we make it happen in a sustainable way is that by us eliminating acquisition costs of the hardware, that's the money that we have as a as a revenue, you know, increase, that's the that's the margin. So when we make money out of the computers that we get, we have about 30, 20, 30% is what we allocate back into the refurbishing of devices, Mm. right? So when you're working with these massive companies that have already depreciated our assets so much, whatever symbolic value that you can give any of them for the hardware that they're getting rid of means nothing to them. So what we're doing is that we're demonstrating that at at an operational Mm -hmm. level, we can compete with virtually anyone because this, the model is pretty standard. It's mm-hmm. logistics and trucks and you bring them to the warehouse and you um, inventory and audit them and provide certificates of data destruction. Everyone, every, every reputable company does that. But where we differentiate is that because we can measure how much money we're making, we also have very, very strong partnerships with folks in the community who are trying to figure out how to bridge the digital divide. We're desperately needing computers, mm-hmm. so then we connect everyone in the whole mechanism, right? And then we can we can say to a, one of our corporate partners, "Hey, because you recycle with us this whole year, mm-hmm. this is how much you recycle This is your environmental mm-hmm. footprint, and this is how many devices we were able to refurbish on your behalf that went to this organization." Mm-hmm. And that's what we call the social impact metric. Mm-hmm. And then we package it. And we present it in the form of an environmental and a social impact report. And now we're giving them data that they're using at their, uh, their environmental sustainability governance goals. So it shows how they're being even more sustainable about their approaches mm-hmm. just by being more mindful on how they use as a vendor, mm-hmm. right? Because, mm-hmm. because you're working with a vendor that has decided to take a commitment to figuring out a problem the community has is your other vendor doing the same? No. Then maybe this would be a good reason for you to consider another vendor, right? If you really want to be mm-hmm. part of this. If you don't really care, it's not part of your scope, then that's fine. But we're realizing that a lot of companies really do care, really mm-hmm. want to think outside of the box.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I have a few questions. Let's start with the, with the, um, with the one that I have about, uh, you know, first thing that comes to mind is when you give computers away from this or when they give it to you from all these companies let's say corporate america now my my brain would go okay what happens if there is data on the computer you mm-hmm. know and because that's the that's the thing that i would worry about if i would want to recycle a computer yeah Am I making sure everything is removed, everything is deleted? Maybe what if something is left? So how do you guys handle that part of the business? Yeah,
1: and that's a very good question because that's that's one of the most complex parts right. of the company. I mean, we exist as an industry because of that specific mm-hmm. need, mm. right? Specifically to address the need of data security, even more than environmental compliance. Mm. It's, it's because massive companies have that, that question and we need to provide a very visual chain of custody mm-hmm. of what happens with the devices from the moment they come into the warehouse to the moment they are recycled or repurposed or refurbished right mm-hmm. so we have an entire system that mm-hmm. takes care of that every hard drive every media every data containing device is either shredded or wiped so when we are if we if we reuse the same computers that we're probably getting from a corporate partner, if we reuse them, and sometimes we don't, sometimes we sell them, and with the money, we buy standardized equipment, and that's the equipment that we deploy, mm-hmm. right? But if we use them, they all go through a data s- sanitization process. Uh, we install a new hard drive, we install a new SSD, new operating system, uh, so everything is, like,
0: it's officially refurbished. Okay, gotcha. mm mm-hmm and is was there in the beginning a process or let's say when you have a new partner that is that is coming to you guys and you know recycling their computers with you is there a process that you have to go through to basically get approved to to work with them
1: it it depends on the complexity of the requirement right. and and that's one of the biggest challenges in the industry right, right is that the depending on uh, depending on the person there's different priorities and needs one of the things that happens with e-waste in particular is that the recycling rates are very low and that's that's that worries a lot because their volume wise it doesn't represent that much but Mm -hmm. toxicity wise it represents a lot so when you look at the numbers at our landfills for example electronics and e-waste probably represent maybe between two and five percent of the volume not that much mm-hmm. but they represent almost 80 percent of the toxics mm. that are in that waste i okay. see right and it happens very similar when those electronics end up in waste to energy plants because then they get incinerated mm-hmm. right or they get dumped. They end up finding their ways into the water. So, from a pollution standpoint, e-waste is a big red flag that we have in our mm. near future. So that in itself is important, right? But then, from the other from the other side, is the understanding that um, data is so important as well in mm. data protection. Mm-hmm. So.
0: Gotcha. Okay, so thanks for the education. I think I have a better a picture now of what it looks like, what the business model also looked like, looks like, and the process. So, okay, let's go back to you know building the company and the business mm. that you that you were bootstrapping, so to say. Okay, so and then what happened from there when you you know when you started now seeing the niche and the need for what you what you were doing and you know how. How did things move from there?
1: It's. I mean, it's been. It's. It's been a process of evolution, right? It's been me coping with not only the idea of how to conceptualize a business model, but also, you know, learn how to run a business, mm-hmm. learn how to manage a team, learn how to uh, get a grip on my processes. It's. It's because you bootstrap, you just know what you know, mm-hmm. and and sometimes you realize that you are the the one that's blocking the entire team Mm -hmm. so learning how to (laughs) recognize that and you know some people take longer some people take Mm -hmm. uh you know a faster route but for us it's been a pretty fun journey because we're trying to figure it out um i think that i would say the business model started taking shape i would say around 2016 17 18 19 is conceptualizing it mm-hmm. and figuring out how to make money and getting credit because mm-hmm. i didn't even have credit as a as a as, you know as a and it wasn't even a resident right at that point oh, wow. so then uh, the business didn't have any credit either mm-hmm. so then imagine how challenging it was to get that first truck to mm-hmm. get that first forklift so that initial climb of growth was very very hard Mm-hmm. because it was funded by credit cards, you know. It was right. funded by the same money that was coming in. Mm-hmm. And then COVID happened, mm-hmm. and everyone understood that this was a problem. Access to technology was a problem. So the value proposition that we had always had as a company was sort of the one that prevailed. And after, you know, 2022, 2023, have been years where we have been able to put a lot of... Um, pilots, you know, to the test and really figure out how this model works. And it's been pretty fun, Mm. yeah, Mm. yeah, figuring it out. Mm.
0: So I I assume you also went through challenges, you know, while building the company, bootstrapping and everything. What was it that kept you going through all these challenges and all these obstacles? What was it that kept kept you motivated, you know, and kept the fire in you and motivated you to just move on and to just go and regardless of the challenges you faced you just keep pushing through
1: man i think i think we go through different periods of motivation mm-hmm. right i think we i think our motivation takes different shapes and and it's for me it's crazy because you don't really know when you're going through a defining period in your life until it has happened Mm. and then you look back Mm. and you're like oh that's when it happened (laughs) (laughs) then you
0: connect the dots
1: right that's Mm. steve jobs right Mm -hmm. um so i i just a lot of um i think i've always felt something inside of me that has told me that um that i can do anything that i want Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. It's like, um, the seed that's planted on you, probably by your parents, Mm -hmm. probably by positive reinforcement, probably by the right environment, probably by the same struggles that you're, that you see every day when you're growing up. And, and then I, I've I've always felt like, um, like I wanted to do something more. I wanted to do something bigger. Mm -hmm. And I just, I I never saw myself in the squares that are provided to you by society from the standpoint of a job, from the standpoint of, uh, but it's because my environment didn't allow me the opportunity to see it, mm. because I, I never really understood what scale was until I came to the United States. Mm. And for me, I've always said, like, uh, we've, I don't know if it happened to you when you were growing up, uh, but... For us, I was always hustling. Right. I was always trying to <laughs> resell something. Right. Right. <laughs>
0: yeah, I can relate to that.
1: I was always like figuring out. So, what mm. do you do? You uh, stainless steel. I want Can I? <laughs> can I buy some from <laughs> you and sell it over there? And just silly ways to hustle because it's what you see and what you know. Mm. And when you have that instinctive nature mm. of seeing the world like that. Mm. And they take you from a place like Venezuela, and they put you mm-hmm. in an economic system like the United States. Mm-hmm. You just you see opportunity everywhere, so it's impossible not to be ambitious mm-hmm. when you see so, so ever ev- like so many different angles, so many different gaps. But that becomes so overwhelming too because right. you're like, what? Right. Wh- where do I start? Mm-hmm. You know what what's how do you hone in into understanding what's the first step and what's the second mm-hmm. step, even the whole concept alley of of knowing that we're only really good at one maybe if mm-hmm. you're lucky two things right, and the rest you just have to delegate and and build a team around. Mm-hmm. I, I remember hearing that in 2014, you know, I remember reading about it when I started my company, I remember seeing people talk about it, but you don't really know what that means mm-hmm. until you start to really try to figure it out. Right, right.
0: So when you say you, you've been hearing that, you know, I believe we entrepreneurs also have people that inspire us through the journey and through our life as an entrepreneur did you have people that maybe you connected with and you had to, you, you had some sorts of relationship with that inspired you in one way or another or maybe even people that you didn't have a relationship with but they they were some sorts of inspiration to you
1: i i think that i i i think i'm blessed because i usually see every interaction every opportunity to meet someone is a way mm. to learn right and i think that we have so many mentors in our life and it's our decision how we take that learning you know do, do we want to take mm. it uh, gracefully or or uh grudgingly mm. and for me i think i have I have learned to see, or at least try to see, you know, every everything that comes at me as, you know, it's it's always good, right? Mm-hmm. That that it's always good, and it, just bring it. Mm-hmm. I right? mean, what's the worst that can happen, right? Mm-hmm. That attitude towards life and towards people, I think it's helped me a lot, because there are so many folks that I've met along the way, mm-hmm. so many, um, that... It's just, it's impossible to do it alone. Mm -hmm. And when we get so fixated with the journey of one individual person, sometimes we forget to see all the context Mm -hmm. that was so important for them to arrive to that spot that even the advice, even well-intended advice that can come from that person is always going to be biased because Mm -hmm. it's going to be very related to their own experiences. Mm. and just having the ability to just take it all in and to shape as i go and to mm. discover myself as i go i've been i've been trying to just understand what it means to enjoy the journey mm. right mm. and just one like every every little stage every little obstacle that comes see it like that and i see it from the people that i meet right. i have so many great mentors that i've met here in the community that I can reach out to. Mm-hmm. And maybe I met through various different groups, but uh, just knowing that they're there, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I think it's, it's what I value when I see the opportunity to not necessarily follow the path of someone, but understand that if I'm present mm-hmm. and I try to understand what gaps I really, really want to solve right now, then I can find out who can potentially help me do that. Mm-hmm just reach out to that person mm-hmm. for that specific problem right
0: mhm and obviously you know uh, it's it's very helpful with your personality and who you are and the way you interact with people but also with what you do you know what what your project is about and what your business is about and the impact that you're having on the uh, on, on on the world and on the community as you say you know i believe people are way more Willing to help and support if a project is like yours, and you know they they know they're making an impact. Right. So um, I believe that's 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 obviously very helpful with with what you do. So okay, let's go back. You know, um, when I when I was looking um, your social media, your Instagram channel, there is so many great. Um, things that you have done and you've been awarded so many times. But there is one specific project that I want to talk about. You're now a, um Apple partner and obviously is something to be really proud of. I believe there are only 12 companies uh, nationwide that are Apple partners in the field that you are. So tell us more about that, how it happened and... Um What exactly happened?
1: For sure. So Apple has this thing called the Apple Impact Accelerator, right? And the Apple Impact Accelerator is part, it's one of their initiatives under a bigger umbrella, you know, push to become carbon neutral by 2030, Mm. which is a very ambitious goal. Because they look at sustainability not only from the standpoint of um, resources that they use in the uh, manufacturing of their products, but also best practices across the supply chain. And it's very interesting because you have have someone like Apple that doesn't have to do this, but they understand the importance of doing it. Mm because of the responsibility that they have as a company. And when you see organizations like that that are pushing the standards, pushing the standards, pushing the standards constantly that know that people have an intrinsic motivation to push those standards knowing that they're going to potentially receive contracts from, you know, a trillion dollar company, mm-hmm. then that's the capitalist system working its best and with the apple impact accelerator what they do is that they try to identify companies across the country that align with some of their pillars that they're trying to achieve as part of this initiative so this is the third time that they've done it Mm -hmm. it's the third consecutive year um They only select between 10 and 12 folks every year. Mm -hmm. And then this year we had the opportunity to be selected there. So now Mm -hmm. we are an alumni of Mm -hmm. the program. And it, it was amazing. It's just it's a program that basically teaches you how a company like Apple works in terms of this is what this is what's important for us mm-hmm. from a supply chain perspective, from a social responsibility perspective, from a equity and justice perspective. And this is our own version and this is what we're putting out there. Mm-hmm and we're basically one to recruit companies that align with us mm. and that for me was so uh eye opening because i've always thought that one of the biggest walls that i always um encounter is that it's very difficult for people to understand that with existing mm-hmm. in this world there's a toll right mm-hmm. when you consume mm. there's there's a toll because you're taking more than you're giving mm. in the general ecosystem and people say well wait a minute i am not because i'm paying for these products and services and they're right right so, by the very way the system works there's some there's a I feel like there's a bigger responsibility that falls in the shoulders of businesses right across the supply chain, from the ones that are producing to the ones that are servicing the end consumer and if we all collectively shared that responsibility, then it wouldn't be a difficult burden mm-hmm. And the case and point is the computers. If you have roughly in this county around just like 15,000 families that don't have access to computers or technology, it doesn't sound like a lot in comparison to the size of the county. Right. But Why? like look at the multiplier effect mm-hmm. of those 15,000 people who don't who don't have access to something as basic that we need mm-hmm. right now in the world as access to a computer and internet when the entire world revolves around you having access to a to a gmail account a, an email account so there's there it doesn't make sense that that, that, that gap exists mm-hmm. right and that's that's just like a microchasm of a general overview of the world and it's like if we just shared a little bit of that responsibility then we would educate Mm. we would create better consumers and then our race would be who can create better more educated consumers faster Mm. instead of being who can create dumber and stupider <laughs> consumers faster mm. because there's only two ways and one one is sustainable mm-hmm. the other one's not right you don't have to be einstein to realize that one path mm. is just chaos and destruction mm-hmm. and the other path is a more collaborative successful thriving environment and i think tampa understands that
0: mm-hmm.
1: I think that's one of the reasons why Tampa is so successful and the ecosystem is so successful because we're good at understanding that. And that's why when you go out into the community and when you participate in all these programs and and community-related initiatives and accelerators and incubators, and if you just have an idea and you want everybody to become better, Mm -hmm. you're one of us, Mm
0: -hmm. right? And I also believe it so much reflects like what you do it pretty much also reflects what you just said and described. Because, you know, when we talk about business and entrepreneurship, oftentimes people perceive it as, okay, I have to be a hard negotiator, I have to win, so for me to win, someone else needs to lose, and yeah. which is nonsense, you know. I, I believe we're living in a world that is abundant, right. that everybody can win, and there is enough for... For everybody to eat, you know, if more people would think the way that you think and also not think only, but also operate, right?
1: Well, and and that's why why it's refreshing when you see companies like Apple putting together these programs that are kind of pushing the limits on what supplier compliance should look like. Because then other companies start to pay attention and do the same Mm. and do the same and do the same. And when you asked me, like, I didn't know that this whole journey of entrepreneurship for me mm-hmm. here in 2014, when I started it, I didn't know that it was going to be such a, uh, such a journey, uh, like a personal journey mm-hmm. for me, because it has become like a, 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 my own personal journey of growth. And as, a, as, as I understand better as a person, i look at my company and my company that's the same thing mm-hmm. and it's this this thing that is encouraging when you see it happening. and when you see it and that's what, that's bringing it back to why I think it's important that when you see companies that are focused on that, then it lets it, it makes you understand that this is where we're this mm-hmm. is where we're heading. this mm-hmm. is where we're going. Mm-hmm. So it's encouraging you know i see it as, a, as as an opportunity to to understand that this is probably not just a fad or a movement mm-hmm. this is a collective uh understanding that because of all the knowledge and access to information that's out there now we're starting to kind of understand that yeah you know what we we are kind of better when we work together right than we work when we work against each other
0: mm-hmm. and i also believe you know the the consumer these days as you just said has access to knowledge and information and they you know businesses cannot just screw them and take take whatever for granted and and you know just take advantage of the consumers the consumers has access have access and they they know what's going on you know and lo- yeah of course if you're if you're here for you know some overnight success which doesn't exist in my opinion and you just want to suck out everything from the consumers yeah it, if that's if that's the goal then you might you might get one thing or something else out of it but long term sustainable like you know successful businesses i believe there is only one way to it and that's that's the way that you just described. Mm. You know, there is no other way to to be long-term successful and have raving fans that are not just consumers, but they're really behind your brand and behind your business and are supporting you. I believe that's the only way to go.
1: Mm. Yeah, I, and uh, I think thank you for that validation. And and like I said, is it's encouraging to see more people think along the same ways because for um it, it it just shows that 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 we are now we're thinking more in how we're collaborating that we're thinking more in how we're creating new business models now we're thinking more in how we can we're consuming uh information and and content so um i just think it's 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 also a great opportunity for every business to align themselves mm. With a cause that not only is very important to them or very important to the team, but it's like you said, we 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 just we just saw that there was a, a some some something was happening that we mm-hmm. felt that it was just unjust, unfair, mm-hmm. and that's it. And yeah. and we just we just tried to came up with a solution of something that shouldn't be there. So if you think in your day to day interactions that there's that there are things that are unjust and unfair Mm. we're in a we're in we're in the best country Mm -hmm. where you can potentially create a business model (laughs) around it exactly and um and and that's it and then you let the market do the rest
0: absolutely you know i also see a lot of people that complain about things um their entire life and don't do anything about it but there are other people like yourself they see some some things that needs fixing and then they go fix it and they make a business model out of it and now everybody wins so something that i wanted to to touch on is when i again when i look at your social profiles i see a lot of projects that children are involved that you're also giving b- or giving back and supporting children. Tell us more about that, please. Yeah. So
1: uh, most of the most of the outreach that we do when it comes to access to technology is somehow related to kids and schools. That's almost, I would say, ninety percent of all of our efforts are probably going to that. The way that we've kind of worked around it is that. If you're a nonprofit and some of your work is around digital inclusion, digital equity, access to devices, access to technology, and there's quite a few right now. There's quite a few because there's been federal acts and a lot of money coming from the federal government that is kind of aimed at trying to solve that problem. So you have a lot of organizations that are doing cool things and a lot of organizations that figure out a way how to get a quick check Mm -hmm. and then they're Mm -hmm. just doing it. And they're not really uh, um, going beyond, you know, checking a few lists and then can I get a grant? Yes, you're good. And so there's quite a few organizations out there. And what we're doing is that we're partnering with them in the community. Mm -hmm. So we're creating very strong partnerships and we're telling them – if one of your areas of focus is access to technology, then by default, access to hardware is one of your issues. Mm-hmm. It has to be, right? So then we will provide the hardware. And what we need in return is the data of what's happening with the hardware. hmm And when we start to figure out exactly where these devices are going and how they're bridging a gap, then we can measure it. Then that's what we're looking at creating, a more unifying way of delivering technology to the community, right? But when we're partnering with all of these organizations that are working in the community, most of them in one way, shape or form are connected to the school district. Which is also an interesting model because you don't want to you don't want to duplicate efforts, right? And I think as you start to as you start to chip away, and f- and and you get to the point and you say, what's the next roadblock that we have in the in the model? Oh, well, how do you know that you're not duplicating efforts? Mm-hmm. And how do you know that you're not giving computers to to a group through this organization and then also through this organization? So then, okay, so we need to create a unifying way that we can all communicate. So then we're creating that unifying way mm-hmm. for the sake of the model. Mm-hmm. We don't know what that's going to turn into in the next five years. It sounds mm-hmm. pretty fun. Right. Just the ability to be talking to people that we're not talking to each other mm-hmm. and putting everyth- everybody under a single goal and mission, it's fun mm-hmm. in its own right. Because now you're, you're going from committees and boards mm-hmm that talk about the issue and they come up with solutions and mm-hmm. no one executes on the solution mm. <laughs> to an actual group of people that okay now we all have a role now we're going out in this community and let's make it happen. Mm-hmm. So that's pretty fun.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. One thing that I'm that I'm really seeing and I really love about what you do is also your you know you're seeing I don't know if you would call it signs that uh, you, you're seeing uh, across the line, but you're seeing opportunities and then you're also, but all at the same time you're also seeing, okay, where can I have an impact? Where can I make an impact? Where can I change lives for the better? Where can I give back, you know? Mm. So that's something that, um, that I really love about what you do and admire you for it. Appreciate that, Ali. And you. I do believe that when we're in the zone... Like when we're really dialed in in what we do, then things like this happen. Yeah. You know, because you really dialed in and you really are hundred percent in what you do what mm-hmm. you're doing. So um I also saw another video um about Stanford University. Tell us about that.
1: Yeah, so Stanford University has a program um that is put together by the Latino Business Action Network LBAN awesome organization It's one of the leading organizations in the country that is looking at again again compiling data from the hispanic consumers have the hispanic business owners um, they're the ones that go through the data and statistics and like there's there's this crazy t- statistic about hispanic business owners that I I love sharing every time I, I have an opportunity because it's it's crazy again. It's one of those things that you're like this doesn't make any sense. So we we have about two trillion dollars of purchasing power in the United States every year. And guess guess what percentage of Hispanic business owners in the country have businesses of more than a million dollars? What percentage? of Hispanic businesses in the country make more than a million dollars. I have no idea. 1%. Wow. 1%. That's my bro. It's crazy. Wow. It's crazy. So then you start to talk about Latinos, right, in right. the communities. Like, man, we don't wow. have representation. We don't have people, you know, understanding our power, you know, our struggles and and talking for us there's no money Mm. (laughs) there's no money Uh so folks like alban then addressing that issue partner with stanford right Mm. and they created the latino the uh, the stanford latino entrepreneurship initiative so the stanford latino entrepreneurship initiative they do two classes every year and you have to apply for the classes and then you're put in this group with other 70 business from around the country. Mm-hmm. And there's a criteria that you have to meet. And there's interviews and stuff that you have to go through to qualify. And then if you, if you make it, they invite you to do a, an accelerator course. And help you hone in in your business to help you grow it. Mm-hmm. And identify w- what's happening that's not letting you explode Mm -hmm. and how do we figure it out Mm -hmm. and then you're in a room with other very successful hispanic business owners from all over the country that they've sort of navigated that too but they're in different stages of growth Mm -hmm. i felt like we were the tiniest Mm. the tiniest one um so then again similar to the other you're an alumni Mm. now so you're part of a network and the goal is to keep growing the network right because it's a no-brainer right um and the, the more the more you get spread out the better so if you're if you're listening to this and you're a mm-hmm. latino entrepreneur mm-hmm. go figure that out go check out all the resources that are in the community uh i i'm telling you we have to appreciate the fact that not a lot of communities have all of the resources that we have in the tampa bay community mm. We have the Small Business Development Center. We have the Entrepreneur Collaborative Center. We have the Chambers of Commerce, the Hispanic, the Latin, the Latin Chamber. Mm. We have Prospera. We have, like, whatever you are, there's an organization here that can help you, and it's not going to cost you anything. Mm. Just reach out. Mm. Ask for help.
0: Thanks. Thanks for letting them know. For sure. So Tony, I know you're you're a busy guy. You know when I was when I was talking to or when I was emailing with your assistant and your team, I was like, okay, Tony is a busy guy. I don't want to, you know, everything has to be. So I'm really grateful for you, and I don't want to take your time much longer. But before we we wrap up, I do have a few questions, few final questions. Going through everything that you went through from coming here and then starting your, you know, doing jobs and then starting your own business out, and today being obviously the heart centered entrepreneur that you are and doing making all the impact that you're making. What advice would you give your younger self who came to the US in 2011? had no clue about what he's going to what he's gonna do, had no idea about what business he was going to start. With all the things that you know today, what advice would you give that young Tony?
1: I would say trust in yourself a little bit more and plan. You know, it's hard. It's hard to take out that piece of paper and that pen and write down what's your goal for the year. Write down, you know, how is this gonna work? Just map it out. It's hard to do. It's even harder if you're doing it by yourself. Mm-hmm. But I know that if I would have done that, it would have saved me a lot of time and money. Mm-hmm. Uh, because you don't, you don't understand the importance of it until you get to the point where you, where you realize that if you don't do that, you're just there's no way that you can grow.
0: Because
1: mm-hmm. you're gonna have a frustrated team. You're gonna have a frustrated life. You just you can't. Mm -hmm. so understanding that probably sooner and it's just trusting myself you know we all got to trust and in our you know what's Mm -hmm. in here
0: and thank you for that and what are the what would you say is the biggest lesson that you have learned along these years being an immigrant entrepreneur what was the if you would pick one big lesson what was the biggest lesson that you have learned also in in life but also in your entrepreneurial journey
1: right i think there are so many lessons right so many lessons right now for some reason the one that's that's coming to me uh in this moment is perspective Mm. it's just perspective the same thing nothing changes the only thing that changes how you look at it you know and it's everything for me it's just perspective change and I, I, I am blessed. I'm, you know, I'm happy that I, you know, have a healthy life and my kids and everything. So it's easier, it's easier to preach mm. about perspective when you when you're preaching from a position of comfort. Right. But uh, it's also, you know, it's it's the biggest factor in whether you want to have a great day or a bad day is how you're going to look at the day. Mm. It's up to you. You mm. can be very miserable <laughs> about your day or very happy. That's
0: so true, right? That's so true, hundred percent. So, um, Tony, before we wrap up, where do people find you? Obviously, we're going to um, link all the all the um, social media in the show notes, but also, you know, tell people where they can find and connect with you.
1: Um, if you just go to our website wwwe Um We have an amazing team working in the background, taking care of business. They're there answering questions. Um, it's one thing that we have as a culture is that we're we're all you know it's bigger than ourselves. Mm-hmm. And yeah, if you hit us up on Instagram, on Facebook, on any of the social medias someone will be there to to help out. But just go to our website and all of the info that you need is right there.
0: Thank you. So Tony, thank you so much for being here and making an impact on other immigrant entrepreneurs by sharing your story and inspiring them to do what they do. And I respect you a lot and I admire you for what you do. And thanks for taking the time and coming here.
1: Thank you. Thank you for creating this An immigrant yourself. Just going going into the community and getting at it this this is this is what we need so thank you thank you for the platform and thank you for the invite
0: it's been a pleasure thank, thank you, you.